be seated. Um, I don't know if you noticed it, but if you looked at the bottom left-hand corner of that hymn, it says, from Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is a psalm written by Moses. We're going to be looking at Moses uh, today, and so that's why I chose Psalm 90. But it's fascinating to me how this psalm proves itself. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Fifth stanza, the busy tribes of flesh and blood with all their lives and cares are carried downward by your flood and lost in following years. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. And then it comes to, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. The fact that Moses wrote that psalm means that psalm in its original form, it's of course been translated uh, into English for us to sing, but that psalm in its original form is 3,500 years old. God's people have been singing that for 3,500 years, and it proves exactly what it says, that generations have come and gone, but God, who is our help in ages past, remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise God. We take out your copy of God's Word for me? Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1008. And if you don't own a Bible or you don't, uh, maybe you own a Bible that's not a very readable uh, translation, I, I'd love for you to take this home. Our session, our elders would be delighted to know that that Bible in your row is getting used, not just on Sundays, but all throughout the week. Uh, so take that as our gift to you if you could use it. I hope you never get tired of hearing the words, take out your copy of God's Word. Because they're a weekly reminder that this book is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of the living God. He, by His Spirit, wrote this book. Yes, He used uh, 40 different human authors over the span of 2,000 years on three different continents to write these 66 books of the Bible. And yet, amazingly, by the inspiration of the Spirit, all 66 books written over 2,000 years by 40 authors on three continents tell the exact same story, which is the story of how Jesus Christ would come to save his people from their sins. The message of our passage today is that Moses' faith, though he lived 15 centuries before the incarnation of Christ, Moses' faith rested completely upon the Lord Jesus. Before I read God's word, let's pray for his blessing. Holy Spirit, you, through the human authors, have written eternal truths in this book, and we pray now that you would write those eternal truths on our heart, in Christ's name, amen. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they weren't afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, 
for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word will stand forever and ever and ever. I mentioned a moment ago there are about 40 human authors of Scripture. But of all of them, all the authors, human authors, that the Lord used to tell this story, no human author wrote more of the Scriptures than Moses. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Psalm 90, uh, which means he wrote around 20% of the Bible. It's no wonder that Numbers 12 calls Moses the great prophet because God, God spoke with Moses in a way that was unparalleled in the Old Testament. But Moses was more than a prophet. He was also the great historian who gave us historical records going all the way back, all the way back to the creation. You know, he, think about that for a moment. Genesis tells us about the events, not only of Adam and Eve's creation, but going back before Adam and Eve, the previous uh, five days of creation week. And Moses was able to retell those events with perfect accuracy because he received that information from God himself, the sole eyewitness of those events. That's why it's so foolish to, to believe anything other than the creation account that's presented for us in Genesis. He, he was the great historian. Moses is also the great lawgiver. It, it was through Moses that God gave the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws, and they were so identified with Moses that the people of Israel would sometimes just refer to them as the law of Moses. Moses was also the great deliverer, leading Israel, Israel out from Egyptian slavery. Uh, Beloved, it's no exaggeration to say that in the eyes of the Jewish people, Moses was the greatest. But I don't think that's why the author of Hebrews devotes this whole section to the faith of Moses. I think the reason we have so much text, so much of this passage about the faith of Moses is that Moses was particularly relevant to the Hebrew Christians who were receiving this letter. You see, the recipients of this letter were folks who had been raised in Judaism. They had been raised in Old Covenant Judaism, Old Testament Judaism. They had all the trappings of that. They knew the Old Testament. They knew about Old Testament worship, and they had left it all behind in order to follow Christ. They, they left the socially popular religion of their region and joined this small persecuted sect called Christians. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but the first time that the term Christian is used in Scripture, it's in Acts 26 when Agrippa uses it as an insult. It's a pejorative, these Christ followers. You know, for us, very few of us have ever experienced real loss because of devotion to Christ. And so it can be hard for us to remember that in the first century, to become a Christian was, in a sense, not only to alienate yourself from society, but to sign your own arrest warrant and, in some ways, your own death sentence. 
And, and so what's happening in this church that's receiving this letter, this church of Jewish converts that are under great pressure of persecution and loss of property, is some of them are starting to fall away. They're starting to say, is it really worth following Christ when it costs me so much? Is it worth following this invisible high priest when I could just go right back to to Old Testament worship and I could have the priesthood and I could have the sacrifices and all those things? Is it worth being viewed as an outsider? Is it worth being viewed as strange in this world for following Christ when I could just go back, I could denounce Christ and life would go back to normal? Is it worth risking arrest and plundering of property and scorn of family and friends to have Jesus? Some of them are wrestling with that. I wonder if you've ever wrestled with that. Is, is it worth, would it be worth following Christ if it became very costly for us? Tragically, some of them have decided it's really not worth it. That's what's called apostasy. It literally means stepping away. They've turned away from the faith. Others are on the brink of doing so. They're questioning, is it worth it? Is it worth all that it costs me to follow Christ? And the author of Hebrews wants to relate to them, and he says, let me remind you about Moses. Moses is a great example of someone who understood the cost of following Christ. Moses had been raised in a faithful Jewish home, but was taken from his parents' home. He was raised in Pharaoh's house. You and I cannot even fathom the kind of decadence and indulgence that that Moses experienced in Pharaoh's house. Wealth and women and extravagant food and parties and power and prestige, they were all at his fingertips growing up in Pharaoh's house. And that forced Moses to make a decision. Am I going to live my life for the best that this world has to offer? Or am I going to live for the world to come? And by faith, Moses chose the invisible things. The things that he could not see, but by faith, they were certain because God had promised them. And of course, living by faith is not a one-time choice. It's, it's not something we do one time and then, and, and then we are done with it. It's an everyday decision. It's something we choose a million times a day in some ways. Whether we prefer the unseen things, the invisible things, or the things of this world. That's the choice of, of faith. And these verses that I read for you a few moments ago highlight that aspect of faith. Choosing the unseen over the seen. Choosing the invisible over the visible. Choosing the temporal over, uh, excuse me, uh, choosing the eternal over the temporal. And as we walk with Christ and our faith grows, we actually begin to prefer the invisible over the visible. And Moses' life was a great example of that. And we're just going to look at four things as we work through this text. First, we're going to look at Moses' preservation in verse 23. Then in verse 24, we'll see Moses' decision. Verse 27, Moses' separation. And then in verse 28, Moses' salvation. And that outline is listed for you in your bulletin if you're 
taking notes. But the first thing I want you to see in verse 23 is Moses' preservation. Look at that. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, using common sense here, we know it's not talking about Moses' faith. It's the faith of Moses' parents who uh, preserved him from death before he was born. Both of his parents were from the tribe of Levi. They were, they were faithful Jews. Their names were Amram and uh, Jochebed. They had at least two other children, Aaron and Miriam. And they lived at a dark time in the history of Israel. God's people had been living in Egypt for several centuries, and they were multiplying quickly. And the Pharaoh, Pharaoh is the king of Egypt, he became so threatened by them that he made them slaves, and they were exposed to brutal slavery. Life was bitter for them. And then to make matters worse, Pharaoh commanded that all the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, kill uh, the Jewish boys upon birth. Well, the midwives were courageous and, and in God's providence didn't do that. And so Pharaoh made a new and even more diabolic edict. And that was all newborn sons must be tossed into the Nile River where they'd undoubtedly drown or be food for crocodiles. Well, this faithful couple, Amram, Amram and Jochebed, became pregnant, and by faith, they resisted the command of the, the edict of the king to leave the child for dead, and instead, they raised him in the home as long as they could. And the text says he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful, and they weren't afraid of the king's edict. Now, you might be using a version that says they saw that he was a fine child. Well, aren't all our children beautiful? Especially here at First Scots, right? They're all fine children, or as Garrison Keeler said, all children are above average. There's more to it than that. A Jewish historian named Josephus says, and we don't know if this is true or not, but he says that Amram had had a vision that his son would deliver the people, and that was what it means when it talks about a fine child or beautiful child, that this was no ordinary child. And so Amram and Jochebed risk their life to preserve their baby's life. Now, even if they didn't have that vision, simply the fact that this was an image bearer of God makes it adequate for them to spare the life of the child. They hid him in their house, their cave, whatever sort of slave quarters they had. But about three months in, a baby can really start to develop lungs, can it? And so hiding the baby became more difficult. Rather than letting Pharaoh's men come and kill the baby and probably kill them for hiding the baby for three months, they came up with a plan. Jochebed took a papyrus basket, covered it with pitch. Pitch was a waterproof type of glue. Placed the baby in the basket. It's safe to say at this point Moses was a basket case. My apologies. Um... That word for basket is the same word used for ark in Genesis 6 through 8. And you can see the similarities that this basket would save the child. In a sense, it would save the people. By faith, they put the baby in the water where Pharaoh's daughter customarily was known to bathe. The baby's sister Miriam watched at a distance when Pharaoh's daughter found the baby, her heart went out to him. She took the baby and raised him as her own. But Miriam says, you know, you need a nurse for this baby. You need someone to, to feed and care for 
the baby and said, I happen to know a Jewish woman that would love to nurse that baby. And so what happens is that Jochebed, in God's providence, got paid to nurse her own child. And in God's providence, was able in some ways to nurture this child in the faith. And no doubt, Jochebed's faith was a substantial influence in Moses' life. Not just that she and Amram had saved the baby, but she appears to have trained the baby up in the teachings of of Judaism. They taught about the promises of God, especially the promises made to Abraham hundreds of years before. They taught of God and the things that are unseen, and they taught Moses to live for the invisible rather than the visible. Now, before we move on, I want to encourage parents that are doing their best to disciple their children and raise a godly family, but you feel like you're walking through a barren wasteland. You you feel like the forces of evil and secularism are assaulting your child at every turn. Moses was literally preserved by his parents' faith. Yes, God is sovereign. God is ultimately responsible, but God uses means, and one of the means God used in Moses' life and with great regularity today to preserve and train up future generations of believers is faithful parents. So parents, endure, press on in training up your children in the nurture and admonition of Christ. So that was Moses' preservation. Second, look at Moses' decision in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. As an adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses was royalty. And to be royalty during Egypt's 19th dynasty when he was growing up would have meant immense wealth and privilege that none of us could even conceive of. The Greek in in verse 24, it doesn't say the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It says he refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter. That was actually a title like Duke of York. And he says, I'm not going to take that title. See, it brought Moses to a point of personal crisis. What am I going to live for? With whom am I going to associate myself? Who are my people? Is it the Jews to whom I was born? Is it Pharaoh in whose house I was raised? Do I stay in the house of Pharaoh and inherit incredible wealth and prominence and power? Or do I go with the house of Israel where I will suffer for a time, but inherit the promises of God? There was a lot at stake. Because if Moses departs from Pharaoh's house to be among the people of God, he not only gave up incredible material blessing, but he risked insulting Pharaoh. Pharaoh could say, how dare you? I I have made sure that you were cared for, and you're going to turn your back on, on me? But to turn his back on Yahweh by becoming apostate, Moses would be forsaking all the privileges of being among God's covenant people and all the future blessings of the kingdom of God. You can see how this would resonate with the, the recipients of this letter who are thinking, maybe, maybe life's better in the world. Maybe if I turn my back on Jesus, I'll have all this world to absorb. 
Moses had the same decision. And what did he decide? I'd rather be mistreated with God's people than enjoy sin's fleeting pleasures. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? I'd rather be mistreated with God's people than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. How did he do this? Did he have a martyrdom complex? Or was this all about racial solidarity? That's how it would be today if the story was told. Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. He gave up a lot, and yet he was confident that he received much more. What was the reward? It was a reward so grand that it made all of Egypt's wealth seem strangely dim. Uh, Going back to verse 10, it was that future city whose designer and builder was God, one that would make the greatest of Egyptian cities look like shackles. It was the promises made to Abraham and all of Abraham's offspring which made Pharaoh's wealth and Pharaoh's property look like a pittance. And most importantly, the reward was God himself. Moses knew God, walked with God. He would dwell with God for all eternity in that great city. Look at verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. How could he not be afraid of the anger of the king? Because he knew a greater king. He knew the king that stood over that king. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. In a sense, he he looked at Pharaoh and he could see the invisible God who was in charge of Pharaoh's every move. And so Moses decided to leave Pharaoh, who was worshipped as a god by his people, in order to follow the true and living God. He couldn't see him with his physical eyes before he decided to leave, and yet he saw him with the eyes of faith. You know, the only thing that could dull the luster of Egypt in Moses' eyes was something greater, and he understood that in following Christ, we receive something exponentially greater. You know, parents, as you war for the hearts of your children and sometimes you're concerned because you you feel like their hearts are being drawn away, yes, certainly we can create rules for them, we can create boundaries, and we ought to. We have obligations to do that. But the greatest thing we can do for our children is to show them the beauty and glory of Christ And watch them as the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his wonder and grace. That's why Moses would rather be counted among the mistreated people of God, and he'd rather suffer with God's people than indulge on everything that the Egyptian courts had to offer. And the author of Hebrews is saying, You get it, don't you guys? Because you know that temptation to seek the world rather than to seek the Lord Jesus. You know the temptation for fleeting pleasures of sin rather than the solid joys and lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. For Moses, it was no question. 
Egypt was temporary. Being numbered with God's people was eternal. We're going to see this this week, this Wednesday evening, in our study of Pilgrim's Progress as, as the main character leaves everything behind in order to flee the city of destruction and to go towards the celestial city. Moses did the same thing. Egypt is the city of destruction. It would all be tested by fire one day, and it would all be burnt to the ground. But the celestial city would never end. And that's what Moses chose. And it's interesting, it doesn't just say that Moses chose God. It it says he chose God's people. Uh, Do you ever hear people say, "I, I love Jesus, but not the church? You know that's not an option, right? Because everybody who belongs to Christ belongs to everybody who belongs to Christ. Biblically, there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. When we are called, when the sheep are called to the shepherd, we are called alongside other sheep. And so Moses chose not just to follow God, but to be numbered with God's people. Moses knew Egypt was for a time, but the holy Mount Zion the celestial city with all of God's people would last forever and ever. You know, Christians, we need to realize that the church of Jesus Christ will outlive this world. One day, everything that steals your attention and your affections from Jesus, it will one day perish. It will one day be gone. Your wealth will one day be tested by fire. Your possessions, your diversions and attractions, and all the other rival gods from Muhammad to Buddha to secularism to atheism to gender ideology to wealth to popularity, all the false gods of this world will one day be destroyed. Do you know it will last forever? Jesus Christ and his church will last forever and ever and ever. And so Moses chose to be mistreated with God's people than to receive all the treasures of this world. That's his decision. His decision then is going to lead to the third thing, which is his separation. He understood he could not live simultaneously for the glories of Egypt and the glories of God. He couldn't live for the city of man and the city of God. He couldn't live for temporal wealth and eternal reward. And so in in yoking himself to God's people, he is voluntarily separating himself from Egypt. He's being, in a sense, called out of the world. He's separating himself from the customs and the values and the mindsets of Egypt in exchange for the customs and values and mindsets of the people of God. You know, Moses physically departed from Egypt, and he went and lived in Midian for 40 years. And it was during those 40 years that, in a sense, what God was doing, he had taken the boy out of Egypt. Now he's taking Egypt out of the boy. He's, he's taking away Moses' love of the world during that time. It's interesting. If you read the, the Hebrew of, of Exodus, you see that one of the reasons Moses fled was he was afraid. He was afraid of the king. 
during this time, that 40-year period, God was strengthening him and breaking Moses' affections for this world and setting those affections upon things that were eternal. And so Moses was able to go back, in a sense, unafraid. But it took time as God was getting the worldliness out of Moses' heart and normalizing godliness in Moses' heart. What is worldliness? Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and godliness look strange. Anything that makes sin look normal and godliness look strange. Well, what is godliness? Godliness is when we begin to do spiritual things naturally and natural things spiritually. And so worldliness and godliness stand at at polar opposites. And Moses understood he could not be a follower of God and simultaneously live for the customs of the world around him because God's customs were foreign to Egypt. You know, what was true for Moses is true for you and me. If you profess to be a believer... There's two sides to that coin. Yes, turning towards Christ, but also turning away from the world. And it doesn't mean we're all going to go live in a commune somewhere. It doesn't mean that as long as we keep ourselves unstained by the world, then we'll be perfect people. The Pharisees tried that and it didn't work. It means we must keep the love of the world out of our hearts. That the love of this world cannot reign. Listen to 1 John 2.15. The Apostle John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is so hard because you and I were born with a natural affection for this world. We were born with a natural love for this world, for the things that are visible. And so it's so easy for us to be attracted to things that are shiny, things that... that offer immediate gratification and it is so difficult to fix our eyes upon the unseen that we may not enjoy right now it's so difficult to set our cell, our eyes on delayed gratification listen listen to james 4 4 he says you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god to love this world is to make yourself an enemy of god It's so dangerous, folks, because when you love this world, it saps any love that you might have for Christ. When you set your attention and your affections on the things that are seen, the things that are unseen will hold no value to you. Moses chose the invisible over the visible, and that meant separating himself from Egypt. Beloved, if you profess to be a Christian, if you have chosen the invisible over the visible, then that means you must separate yourself from the love of the world. You must wean yourself from the love of the world because what you love determines how you act. And if you profess to be a Christian, you are simply not free to do whatever is right in the eyes of the world. You are obliged to do what is right in the eyes of God. And that's going to put you at odds with this world. And they're going to look at you as a bigot. They're going to look at you as narrow-minded. 
but wouldn't you rather be at odds with this passing world than to be at odds with the eternal God? See, that's the decision Moses had to make. That's what scripture means in Romans 12 too, when it says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You can either conform to the patterns of this world, you can let it squeeze you into its mold, or you can please God, but you cannot do both. You must separate yourself from the patterns of this world to live for what is eternal. So that's, that's Moses' separation. The final thing I want you to see is Moses' salvation. Moses was born for great purpose, which was to go to Pharaoh, to demand that Pharaoh let God's people go. Pharaoh refused. God sent a series of ten plagues. Each of those plagues was actually an attack upon the false gods of, of Egypt. And then after each plague, Pharaoh would change his mind and say, go, and then he would yet again refused to let the people go till the 10th plague the plague of the firstborn son this plague meant that an angel of death would come to every house and strike down the firstborn son even including pharaohs but god had made a provision there was one way to be spared that was to sacrifice an unblemished lamb at prime age and in perfect health to spread the blood of that lamb across the doorpost. And wherever that blood was, the angel of death would pass over that house. That's why we call it Passover. The instructions were peculiar. The cost was high, but it was the only way of salvation. And Moses had nothing to go on but God's word, and by faith he did. Look at verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Think about this peculiar salvation that God has brought. How were people saved? Not by fighting, but by faith. By faith in blood. By faith in the blood of a lamb. You know, sometimes... People will say Moses was all about law, but the gospel, Jesus, is all about grace. This passage completely dispels that idea. They were saved simply by God's grace through faith. And what was that faith in? It was faith in a lamb whose blood would be shed to take away their sins. Do you think it was in that physical lamb, though, that the blood was smeared over their house? Is that what actually saved them? Is that the picture of salvation we're supposed to walk away with? I don't think so. You see, that lamb and the millions of lambs that would be slaughtered year after year in recognition or in remembrance of that event they all pointed to something greater. A greater exodus where the true Lamb of God would come to take away the sins of the world and all who are under His blood would be saved. See, the Lamb itself wasn't the Savior. It was a, a foreshadowing. 
of the Lamb of God who would one day come. And every year when the Passover was observed, in a sense, God was preaching to a sermon to his people, yes, my dear children, one day I'll provide the ultimate, eternal salvation, delivering you not out of Egypt and into an earthly Jerusalem, but out of bondage to sin and into a heavenly Jerusalem. In that right, we can say Moses' faith was in Jesus Christ, wasn't it? If I had this title to, uh, the title of the sermon to rename for your bulletins, I think I would call it our brother Moses or Moses the Christian. And that sounds peculiar because Moses died about 1,400 years before the incarnation of Christ. And yet he looked forward to that Messiah that we look 2,000 years back to. But his faith and our faith have the same resting place in Jesus Christ. His salvation is our salvation. You see, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's saying here, Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. Everything pointed to Christ. If you want to make sense of the Old Testament, look forward to Jesus because he's the Lamb of God who alone takes away the sin of the world. How much did Moses understand about that? You know, I've always wondered. I know he knew it. It's it's even interesting here. Hebrews says that he chose the reproach of Christ. He chose to suffer with with the Messiah. But he didn't know as much as you know about Christ. Let me ask you in a sense, are you a modern day Moses? And I don't mean a deliverer of God's people. But have you considered all the temptations and attractions of this world and said, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. That's, that's really what Moses said because he knew Christ alone could satisfy his soul. Christ alone could take away his sin. Christ alone could be his dwelling place forever and ever and ever. Have you turned your back on those things in order to follow Christ? Have you decided to follow Christ even risking the reproach of the world Are you still chasing after the rewards and treasures and fleeting pleasures of this world and risking the damnation of God? So you can't escape this decision. And if you choose to follow after the world, you will not escape the damnation that follows. But if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, then you can't imagine the reward, the treasure that awaits you. Beloved, are you following the same Jesus that Moses was following? Let's look at a couple applications here. First, just another word to encourage parents, and sometimes I need it as much as y'all do. And I'll say to encourage grandparents and encourage the men and women of this church who are helping to disciple the young people of this church, even if you have no blood relation to them. 
Amram and Jochebed faithfully invested in Moses even while the world was seeking to draw Moses' affections away. And that's a great model for us. Parents, do not let the world hold greater influence in your child's hearts than you do. Invest chiefly in your children. And if all you're doing is teaching your children to run after a good career and a good standing in society, but you're not teaching them to follow, to live for the unseen things, then you are setting your children up for destruction. If you're turning your children over to, to the secular school system, if you're turning your children over to, to constant uh, exposure to screens and watching what the world feeds to them, one day you're going to wonder, why did my children turn away from Christ? God tends to not bless our parenting when we turn our children over to the world. Certainly, He can intervene. But what he most commonly does is he takes parents who nurture and train their children in the admonition of Christ and he pours out great blessing. And we have thousands of years of history that back that up, including Moses. Parents, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of Christ. Do not not turn them over to the world. Second, a word about the fleeting nature of sin. It talks about that in verse 25, the proskyron. It it means the sin's pleasure for a moment, for a season. You know, sin really is fun for a time, isn't it? One author, though, described it as something that tastes good for a moment but leaves a terrible aftertaste. And what we tend to have to do to get rid of the aftertaste is to run back to the sin. That's how addiction happens. And don't think that addiction is just about alcohol or it's just about drugs. We become addicted to this world in hopes that it will finally bring us those pleasures that we're looking for. But they are always fleeting. They always disappear quickly. And what happens is we think we're buying ourselves more pleasure when we engage with the world, but we're actually selling ourselves into slavery. And sin is fleeting, and it always leaves us miserable in the end. Another application. What should you expect, for Scots? what should you expect when you turn away from the love of this world in order to follow Christ? Reproach. That's exactly what Moses expected. Reproach. You'll expect to be called a bigot. You'll expect to be called a hater. You can expect all sorts of things to happen. You can expect even possibly family and friends to desert you. So what should you do? Stand firm. Truth has never been determined by majority vote. Truth is whatever Yahweh says it is. In 1 Kings 18, 851 prophets gathered on Mount Carmel. One stood for Yahweh, the rest ridiculed him. That's what they did to Moses. That's what they did to Christ. And that's what they will do to you if you stand for Christ. But if you are suffering reproach for Christ, you're in good company with Moses, with Elijah, with the saints through the ages, and with Jesus himself. Finally, 
as we come to the Lord's Supper, we need to be reminded about this meal. In the Old Covenant, the family meal was Passover. But when Christ, our Passover lamb, came and was sacrificed, the New Covenant meal became the Lord's Supper. When you take this meal, you're making a pronouncement, a public pronouncement. I, like Moses, have decided to follow Christ and to forsake all else to follow him. By grace, I, like Moses, have decided to join myself with God's people. Communion is not just vertical, but it's horizontal. We partake of this, not privately, but together. I, like Moses, have recognized that nothing else in this world can satisfy my soul. And so I come to this table as a picture of what I long for in life. Solid joys and lasting treasure, the kind that none but Zion's children know. Let's pray together. O oh Lord our God, we love Christ. Not nearly as much as he deserves. Not nearly as much as we would if we weren't so distracted by the world. But we love Christ because he is so infinitely worthy of our love. And I pray that as we come to this table, it would strengthen us that by your grace, you would teach us and you would develop in us an appetite, not for the things of this world, not for the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Give us a hunger that can be filled only for the Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name.